You're listening to a sermon from crckulaman.org. Now a man of the house of Levi married a Levite woman and she became pregnant and gave birth to a son. When she saw that he was a fine child, she had him for three months. But when she could hide him no longer, she got a basket for him and coated it with tar and pitch. Then she placed the child in it and put it among the reeds along the bank of the Nile. His sister stood at a distance to see what would happen to him. Then Pharaoh's daughter went down to the Nile to bathe, and her attendants were walking along the riverbank. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her slave girl to get it. She opened it and saw the baby. He was crying, and she felt sorry for him. This is one of the Hebrew babies, she said. Then his sister asked Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and get one of the Hebrew women to nurse the baby for you? Yes, go, she answered. And the girl went and got the baby's mother. Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this baby and nurse him for me, and I will pay you. So the woman took the baby and nursed him. When the child grew older, she took him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses, saying, I drew him out of the water. One day, after Moses had grown up, he went out to where his own people were and watched them at their hard labour. He saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his own people. Glancing this way and that and seeing no one, he killed the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. The next day he went out and saw two Hebrews fighting. He asked the one in the wrong, Why are you hitting your fellow Hebrew? The man said, Who made you ruler and judge over us? Are you thinking of killing me as you kill the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, What I did must have become known. When Pharaoh heard of this, he tried to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and went to live in Midian where he sat down by the well. Now a priest of Midian had seven daughters, and they came to draw water and fill the trough to water their father's flock. Some shepherds came along and drove them away, but Moses got up and came to their rescue and watered their flock. When the girls returned to rule their father, he asked them, Why have you returned so early today? They asked, An Egyptian rescued us from the shepherds. He even drew water for us and watered the flock. And where is he? He asked his daughters. Why did you leave him? Invite him to have something to eat. Moses agreed to stay with the man who gave his daughter Zephora to Moses in marriage. Zephora gave him a son and Moses named him Jershom saying, I have become an alien in the foreign land. During that long period, the king of Egypt died. The Israelites groaned in their slavery and cried out, and their cry for help because of their slavery went up to God. God heard their groaning and he remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac and with Jacob. So God looked on, his, on the Israelites and was concerned about them. 
I have a few childhood memories of times where I needed to call out for help, call out for someone to save me. Uh, the first was when I was really probably very, very young, going for a walk with my mother, and a brown snake came across our paths. And I don't know if the brown snake was rearing up at us, but that's my memory of it, that it was rearing up at us. And I remember my mum screaming out for my dad to, to come and, and save us. Warren, come and, come and help. Another memory, again, I, I would have been very little. I was stuck in an ant nest and you'd think you'd just get off it but when when you're a small child you don't realize just to move away and I remember calling out for my mum to come and save me and then the third was when I was a bit older and myself and a cousin we were playing in a, a wheat truck like a truck loaded with wheat as as you do in the 1980s and you grow up on a farm you wouldn't do it today would you uh, and I remember getting stuck up there because I was a bit scared of heights and I couldn't get myself down so I had to call out to her brother to come and rescue me. I wasn't able to rescue myself in any of these situations and I had to call out for a deliverer. And I guess that's what we see the Israelites doing in Exodus chapter 2. And if you were here last week when we looked at Exodus chapter 1, uh, we looked at some of God's promises versus the reality of what the Israelites were actually experiencing. And if you missed that, you might want to jump online and have a listen to that this week. And chapter 1 closed with this sort of tension of covenant promises of God versus the reality of God's people being slaves and, and their suffering. And there's that tension there. Will God deliver them from evil? What is God doing? Is he even doing anything? And as we, we come into chapter 2, we see that God is indeed doing something. We see that God is preparing a deliverer. Uh, one of the first things you notice in chapter 2 is that God uses very unlikely people in his stories, in his acts of deliverance. Did you know that? Uh, Moses might be the leader that outworks the final plan for deliverance of the Hebrews, but there are a series of unlikely people that God uses first. Uh, the first is a mother. He uses a mother with a special baby. Of course, the baby boys are supposed to be thrown into the Nile River, aren't they? But this mum, she notices something special about this baby. I know every mum, we think that our babies are special, don't we? Uh, but I wonder if God's presence was, was sort of already with this baby. And already the voice of God perhaps was whispering to this mother, this, this baby, he's my chosen one. He's the deliverer. And so she hid him for as long as she could. And this mother, she acts both in faith and shrewdness. She's a very shrewd lady. And uh, do you know what she does? She puts him into an ark. Now, I know you think it's a basket. Well, it is a basket. But, but the, the, the word there, basket, is actually the same word that's used for ark. Isn't that interesting? And, um, and she, they've been told that they should throw their babies into the river. Now, technically, that's what she does, isn't it? Technically, she puts the baby into the river. But she's shrewd, isn't she? And uh, she puts him in this basket first. So we have in, in, in Genesis this, this floating vessel of uh, deliverance and salvation, in, in Exodus rather, ju just like the ark in, in Genesis. And um, it, it's a rather innocuous and strange beginning to God's great rescue plan, isn't it? A baby in a basket. 
And, um, you know, this, this loving mother desperate to somehow see her baby not perish. So, so she weaves this, this basket out of reeds and, and she, she coats it with the same tar and pitch that Noah coated the, the, the ark when he too, in faith, built a boat and, and trusted in God's deliverance plan. I wonder, have you ever in faith built a boat? Because I don't mean a real, a real boat or maybe you have built a real boat, I don't know. Actually, um, yeah, I've built boats before. We used to go on those gummy races. Did you ever go on a gummy race? Yeah, you build a boat? They were awesome, weren't they? Hey, they were good fun. Um, ha- have you ever in faith built a boat? You know, um, done something where you just step out in faith. You're just trusting in his promises. You're looking to him to be the answer. You're looking to him to be your, your salvation. And, and, you know, you do what maybe seems pointless or foolish and maybe other people laugh at you or, you know, you, you recognise the futility of what you're doing. But um, you, you do it anyway because you're looking to God and you're trusting in God. I can sort of almost, um, you know, imagine this mother, she, she, she's putting this, this baby in this, this floating um, boat on the river and... Um, and, and she becomes the first unlikely hero in this, this story of deliverance. And it, it's really quite beautiful, isn't it? The, the second uh, hero in this plan is the sister. And we find out later that the sister's name is, is Miriam. But for now, she's just referred to as the baby's sister. And she, she's there watching the baby in the boat to see, you know, what's going to happen? What's going to happen to this little baby in this basket? And, and as she's watching, our third very unlikely hero enters. It's, it's Pharaoh's daughter. Now, it's, it's quite interesting, isn't it? In a time and culture that was so heavily patriarchal, so uh, dominated by, by men, in a nation where Pharaoh was king, ruler, uh, great one, son of the gods, you know, no one is more powerful than Pharaoh, are they? Uh, we see the downfall of Pharaoh's plans being brought about by women. How good's that? You know, chapter one, it was the midwives, wasn't it? Okay. And chapter two, we've got the mother, we've got Miriam, and we've got Pharaoh's own daughter. You know, Pharaoh's own uh, plan for genocide left the daughters untouched. Remember, it was the sons who were to be thrown in, into the river and killed, but the daughters were to remain untouched. Yet it was his own daughter who was the downfall of that plan. That sweet irony right there, isn't it? I love how God um, works like that. He raises up the most unlikely people to serve him and his purposes, and people with very little natural power or influence. And, of course, Pharaoh's daughter must have had um, compassion on this baby because she, she, she knows who the baby is. She knows this baby is a Hebrew Yet in an act of, I don't know whether it's defiance or, or what it is, of her father, she, she protects this baby and she cares for the baby. Uh, I don't know what motivated her to do this, to, to take sides with the Hebrews. I, I think it must have been compassion. But she does it. And um, it's interesting that she even gives the baby a Hebrew-sounding name. She names him Moses, which sounds like the Hebrew word for, for draw out. Uh, Miriam, our other um, unlikely hero, she's, she's a bit like her mum. She's a bit cluey. She's a bit shrewd as well. And, and when she sees the princess with the baby, she seizes the opportunity to suggest that she gets one of the Hebrew women to nurse the baby. And of course, as we know, she gets uh, the mother. And uh, the baby uh, is protected now by the same royal decree 
that, that, that issued the death warrants. And again, there's a beautiful irony here as God uses Pharaoh's own family against him. And Moses grows up as the son of a princess, effectively Pharaoh's grandson. You know, only God could pull something like that off, couldn't he? Only God could do that. It's incredible. So God, we see God using people who are both ordinary and available and compassionate. So you, you might not feel like you're the most likely person to be used by God in his plans for the deliverance of the world. God uses unlikely people. Uh, are you an ordinary person? Do you think you're pretty ordinary? Yeah, I think I'm pretty ordinary. He uses ordinary people, mothers, sisters, daughters. Uh, away at the pastor's retreat, uh, it, was, it was just always really refreshing going and meeting other pastors and just seeing how ordinary they are, hey? And, um, you know, all, all interests, all ages, all looks, all funny little quirky obsessions about things, you know. Um, These aren't a bunch of people with super white, glossy teeth and, you know, superstar, attractive celebrity status. They're just really normal, everyday people that God uses. He uses available people. Are you available? Are you available? Pharaoh's daughter was just going about her morning routine, wasn't she? Just doing what she did every day, and God used her. Uh, Miriam and and her mother were submitted to God, not Pharaoh, and and their desire was to to honour God with no concern for what it meant for them. And I think a common theme you'll find amongst people who who commit their life into a service of, of God is the idea of taking up their cross to be a disciple of Jesus. That, that idea of the, the world before me, no, no, the other way around, the world behind me, <laughs> the cross before me, I've got to get this right, the world behind me, the cross before me, you know, no turning back. It's that idea of, you know what, I'm available. I'm focused on you, Lord, and all that other stuff, it's, it's behind me now, and it's just you, and I will take up my cross, and I'm available to be your servant surrendered to you you know our national chairman of the CSE Bill Vassilakis he often talks about this stuff surrendering to God I'm here I'm ready I'm available is that you are you here are you ready are you available the third uh, type of person uses uh, uh, compassionate people he uses compassionate people in verse uh, 6, we see the princess. You know, she finds this basket, she opens it, she, she uh, finds a baby crying and she feels sorry for the baby. When compassion is your motivation for service, when compassion is your motivation for, for being God's deliverer, you know, you'll always be able to selflessly keep on giving. You'll always be able to give with a God heart. But on the flip side, if you're kind of one of those people who are a needy giver, a needy helper, rather. You know, if you're motivated to help others out of your own sense of incompleteness and your own need for recognition, your own need to be noticed, to be valued, to be appreciated, you're not going to be able to give for long because you're going to get tired, you're going to get offended, you're going to get annoyed, you're going to get hurt because there, is, there will never be enough value or recognition or appreciation to sort of feed that, that hungry little hole inside of you. It must always be compassion and love that motivates your service. 
So my question for you today, are, are you ordinary? Are you available? Are you compassionate? And God sends you out <laughs> to be part of his deliverance plan. It was interesting when Jan was, was sharing earlier about uh, trying to give God's plans a bit of a heave along. It's one of the things you, you see happen in Exodus chapter 2. And we see this false start that Moses has. Things seem to be on track for a deliverer to be raised up. You know, God's positioned a man from the tribe of Levi in a place of sonship in the royal household. I mean, that's got some good potential to bring freedom right there, hasn't it? Okay, a Hebrew right there where all the power and action is. God's on track. His rescue plan, it's, it's looking sweet. Um, and, and even though uh, Moses grew up in the Egyptian courts, he clearly knows who he is as a Hebrew. Verse 11 talks about uh, you know, one of his own people. His identity as a Hebrew is strong and he's passionate about the welfare of his people. He has a heart for, for those who are oppressed and downtrodden. So you, you could say Moses is available. You could say Moses is compassionate. But do you know what he does? He has a false start. He jumps the gun. He moves too soon. Let's read verse, verse 11 to 13. One day after Moses had grown up, he went out to where his people were and watched them at their hard labor. He saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his own people. Looking this way and that and seeing no one, he killed the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. The next day he went out and saw two Hebrews fighting. He asked the one in the wrong, why are you hitting your fellow Hebrew? So he has, he has this great sense of passion and compassion and, and he looks around and he sees no one and he, and he kills the Egyptian. Now, of course, there was someone watching though, wasn't there? Do, do you know who was watching? The, the slave that was getting beaten up. He was watching. He was there, wasn't he? And, and I'm guessing he probably went about and told a few people because the following day when, when uh, Moses sees two Hebrews fighting and kind of pulls them up for it, they know what he's done. And they call him out as a, as a murderer. And, and uh, they're kind of indignant at the very thought that he might be exerting authority over them. And they say, well, are you going to kill us as well? Who do you think you are? You know, you think that because you are the adopted uh, son of Pharaoh's daughter, you have the right to boss us around? You know, uh, do you ever think like that with people? Who are they to tell me what to do? Who are they to give me advice? You know, who are they? Do they think they're better than me or know more than me? Don't they know who I am? Don't they know how smart I am? Hey, the life experiences I've had? <laughs> Anyway, the word, is, the word is out, isn't it? The word is out. And Pharaoh tries to kill Moses, and so Moses is now on the run. And he heads out into uh, outside of Egypt, and he, he heads to the country of uh, uh, Midian, I think it is. And, and here, we see, here we see more women become key players in the story. And uh, it's the seven daughters of Rule, or uh, um, otherwise known as Jethro, in other parts. And um, he, th this man's name means friend of God or one who is intimate with God. So, Mo so, so we see Moses is out, he's headed out into the desert. And um, once again, 
out here with these, uh, with, on the run, he shows his heart for oppressed people. And so when the shepherds who were there try and chase away the women from watering their, their sheep, Moses steps to their defence and he helps them get water and water the sheep. And this time Moses' actions have a slightly more positive outcome for him. And he's given shelter with the girl's father and he actually ends up marrying one of them. So things could be worse. Um, but they're certainly not great either, are they? They could be worse, but they're certainly not great either. And we get a sense of Moses' despair and isolation and, and a sense of his failure with the naming of his son. And he names his son Gershom. And this word sounds like the Hebrew word foreigner. And there's a sense of misery here as he laments, I've become a foreigner or I've become a stranger in a foreign land. It might not mean a lot to us. We kind of think it's exciting to go to a foreign land, don't we, and kind of maybe live in France for a while. We're like, yeah, we're living in a foreign country. I don't know anyone. Yay! You know, it's exciting. Europe. Who doesn't like Europe? Um, but, you know, if you're a Hebrew, you don't think like that. Uh, you know, for a Hebrew, your connection to your family, to your tribe, to your people, to your, your culture is as much a part of you as your fingerprints and your DNA is. And so living as a foreigner, especially due to your own silly actions, is um, something that I think brings a lot of shame for Moses. He had all the wealth and all the power and all the privilege and education and connections that comes with, with growing up in a palace. I mean, he could have saved his people somehow, surely. You know, if we look at Acts chapter 7, 25, he, he, he really thought that the Israelites would realise that God had put him in that position of influence to rescue them. He could have come to their defence. He could have alleviated their suffering. He could have somehow gained some equality or some rights for them, but they didn't see that and, and Moses felt like he'd messed up and he felt like he's all alone. He felt like he's a stranger in a foreign land and that he is a failure. And meanwhile... The Israelites are still suffering. They're still groaning. Um, there's, there's, you know, there's physical pain and oppression. There's psychological pain and oppression and they're crying out to God. So God was raising up a deliverer for his people and things initially looked promising. But it was a false start. It's a false start. You know, God... Uh, you know, a special boy has been born and he's been kept safe and alive and he's brought up in the royal household and God's moving, God's outworking his promises, salvation's coming. You know, that's all at the start of chapter 2. But by the end of chapter 2, we see God's chosen deliverer in a foreign land, living with foreign people on the run and unable to return to Egypt. His people are still suffering and there's no real prospect that anything is going to ever change. I think uh, false starts are often quite common on our journey with God. And they can be a really confusing part of our faith life. In fact, I think they can often really undermine our faith and become quite a stumbling block. You know, false starts, perhaps you've had some of these. You know, God promises you something. Or you've been calling out to God for deliverance or an answer to a need. There's, there's something you believe in God for. And you start to see answers to your prayer. Yeah? 
you know, things start to change uh, and things start to look promising and, and there's a new provision or a new opportunity comes up. You know, the, the very thing you've been wanting or needing or praying for, it's, it's there, it's on the horizon and, and God seems to be moving things into place for victory. You know, maybe, maybe you know, you've been sick and you get some positive test results. Or maybe you know, there's, a, there's a job opportunity and it seems like God is supernaturally positioning you for that. Maybe you've had some, some mental health problems and you, know, you start to feel better and your symptoms are going away or the medication is helping. Perhaps there's been relationship issues and, and, and you reconcile with that person. Or you start to have a great time together and then things start to look positive in that relationship. Maybe there's a prophetic word you've been praying into and you can see God starting to move some pieces into place to to bring uh, the outworking of that word. And your faith is powering, isn't it? You can taste God's victory. You know, the Holy Spirit feels so present in your situation and you know God is moving. Then you start to feel unwell again. Well, the next lot of test results don't look so great. Perhaps the job opportunity falls through. Maybe your mental health gets challenged more so than before. The relationship that seemed to be on the mend is now uh, fractured once more and you're betrayed or there's an argument. The prophetic word seems to be dissolving in front of you. All the things that you thought God was bringing to pass seem to evaporate and nothing comes of it. What happens to your faith now? It's not powering along so well, is it? It's one thing to keep living in hope that one day in the future God will bring deliverance. But there's there's something really difficult about thinking that God is doing it now, about interpreting events as being God and then seeing nothing come of it really undermines your faith and you start to doubt because you start to think well well all of my experiences of God if I if I've misinterpreted this that I thought was God then then what about every other experience of God I've had were they were they real or was it just me wishfully thinking they were God do I really see you at work in my life God I remember at a previous church I was at, and I think I've shared this story before, but in another denomination in another town. And it was, it was a small church, but I knew God wanted to renew this church. I knew that God had great plans for that church to become a vibrant Holy Spirit church. It was small, but I knew God would grow it. And I had this picture in my head that I would see of the church building filled with people. And you know what? Things were happening in that church. The Holy Spirit was, was moving and, and this church that had traditionally rejected the gifts of the Holy Spirit, you know, people would, would pray in tongues and the worship was amazing. And, and we had this vibrant women's ministry happening with you know, 10 to 12 women eagerly meeting weekly. And the church was growing and there was this great sense of eager expectation about what God was going to do. But it was a false start. And that church fellowship folded over a decade ago. Some of the leadership never recommitted themselves back to church again. Many people left very hurt and it was a significant challenge to my faith because I really believed that God had a future and a plan for that church to thrive. 
And I really believed that I had started to see God outwork that plan. Have you had any false starts? How did they affect your faith, I wonder? I think we all need to learn how to deal with failure or what seems like failure. Much of what we interpret as failure, I think, is really God preparing us, getting us ready, shaping us, training us, strengthening us, building us, equipping us. He's not failing us. He's preparing us. God has been preparing Moses from the start of his life. God takes time to equip his people for service in the kingdom. He trains his soldiers. I mean, you wouldn't take a, a, a preschooler, would you, and, and have him teach university students? Hmm? No. I mean, it takes time to prepare a little preschooler to, 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 to learn, to grow, to mature, to experience things. Our little preschooler here needs to finish preschool and, and he needs to attend primary school. Then he needs to attend secondary school. Then he needs to go to university himself and get a bachelor degree. And then he, he really needs to go and get a postgraduate qualification. And only after many years of learning and growing and practice and experience is that little preschooler are ready to teach at university. God prepares you. He trains you. And it can take many years of learning and growing and maturing before you are ready to do the job that God has for you. Don't think that you're going to suddenly walk into an area of ministry or leadership or service or anything really without going through God's training camp first. So we see God has been preparing Moses uh, he's been uh, preparing Moses uh, in relation to his education. So Acts chapter 7, verse 22, we see that God has been positioning him with uh, all of the natural leadership skills and abilities that would enable him to be God's mouthpiece in the palace. All of the things that give him the ability to lead the nation of Israel. He gains the ability to, to write, I'm guessing if Moses grew up as a slave making bricks, he probably wouldn't have learned how to read or write. And I think the writing of the Torah would have been a little bit challenging for him, wouldn't have it? So God is preparing Moses. He's preparing Moses to depend on God. Moses' natural instinct was to save the Hebrews one by one. One Hebrew dead and buried, thousands more to go. Would have taken a while, wouldn't have it? God had other plans. Human effort apart from God's protection, power and presence is never successful, is it? Although Moses knows himself as a Hebrew and has a sense that he's to act on the people's behalf for their deliverance, his actions are futile and fruitless because he uses his solutions and his strength. You know that sometimes our solutions to our problems just make them worse. Have you experienced that? Have you heard of the cobra effect? The cobra effect. Uh, the term the cobra effect uh, stems from an antidote from the time of British rule in colonial India. The British government was concerned about the number of venomous cobra snakes in Delhi. 
And so they offered a bounty for every dead cobra. It's a bit like the 10 cent refund we get on cans. It's kind of like a 10 cent refund you get on deadly snakes. So initially, uh, this was a successful strategy as large numbers of cobras were killed for the reward. However, what do you think ended up happening? Kaluuya people started breeding cobra snakes and cashing in on them. Now, when the government became aware of this, the reward program was scrapped. And so, of course, all these breeders have all these snakes that are now worthless. So what do they do with them? They let them go. And so as a result, the wild cobra population actually increased. All right, so, so the apparent solution to the problem actually made the situation worse. Do you ever try to figure out your own solutions to problems? Do you ever try to use your own natural power or skills to sort things out for yourself and completely leave God out of the equation? Now, I don't mean that, that God doesn't want us to have a bit of a think and to use some of the natural abilities he's given us. But he doesn't mean for us to cut him out of the equation completely, does he? Did you ever try to force God's timing and get a solution earlier than you should? How'd it work out for you? I remember uh, in the early days of my current job in mental health, as I've again shared before, it was a bit difficult. And I wanted out. <laughs> I wanted a different job. But that would have been a premature solution. It wouldn't have worked out. And every time I Googled for a new job, I knew. And the voice was there. No, this is not right, Annette. This is not the right timing. This is not going to work out. I'm like, I know, God. I know that. But I'm just going to look anyway. <laughs> I just, just want to look. Humor me, Lord. Uh, yeah, I would have missed out on important things that God had for me in this job. And I, I really do believe that it would have resulted in, in prolonged problems if I had prematurely left that role. Moses' premature solution didn't work out, did it? And he ended up in Midian, which I think was probably the middle of nowhere. I suspect it was a bit like ending up in Timbuktu. However, Timbuktu was exactly the right place that Moses needed to be to learn that deliverance would come from God and in God's timing. Forty years of solitude and isolation as a shepherd away from his people, alone, humbly taking care of sheep, humbly married to someone outside of his people group, living as a foreigner, that seemed to be exactly the right sort of preparation that Moses needed to be a leader that depended on God's instruction, that depended on God's timing, and had the patience to deal with the often stubborn, and rebellious and ungrateful Israelites. When Moses fled to Midian, it wasn't failure. It was preparation. Failure in God's hands can be beneficial for us. You know, most of the people in the Bible have, have personal stories of failure, don't they? But, but for those who submitted themselves to God's refining process, who humbled themselves before God, who knew, knew their need of him... Their failure served as preparation. I wonder whether some of the failures you've experienced, were they failures or were they actually preparation? They're failures when we, we refuse to humbly learn from God in them. But they're preparation when we submit ourselves to God and allow him to use them to, to grow us, to strengthen us, 
and to train us for service. Hebrews chapter 12 verse 7 talks about uh, enduring hardships as discipline. And and I would say that failures and false starts are, are like this, are like discipline. Discipline and preparation for effective service. It probably won't be pleasant, but it is productive. Have you been able to come to God with your false starts, your stumblings and your shortcomings? Have you learnt to repent and wait on him, rely on him, depend on him, hope in him, have faith in him? It's no good having faith in yourself. That's what got us all into this mess to begin with, isn't it? Have faith in God. He is your rescuer. He is your deliverer. Did you know that deliverance and faith go hand in hand? Our deliverance comes through faith. Our rescue from evil, our rescue from brokenness, our rescue from all the suffering that exists comes through faith. Salvation is by faith. It's by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not of yourselves. It is a gift of God. You trust in Jesus to free you from death to free you from that old selfish nature, to restore you to favour with God, to give you a whole new life. You look to Jesus for this, not to yourself. You wait on him, you rely on him, you depend on him, you hope in him, you have faith in him. He's the source of your salvation and deliverance. And so living a life of faith means living in expectation and trust, even if you don't see the promises or receive the fruit of those promises. It's the patience we were hearing about in the communion message. Hebrews 11 verse 1, Now faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. Or Hebrews 11.39 talks about all these great people of faith and they were all commended for their faith, yet none of them received what had been promised. None of them received what had been promised. It's not easy to live like that, is it? From Exodus chapter 2, as we journey as believers, we, we see that we need a faith that is trusting, a faith that is patient, and a faith that is open-minded. We need a faith that is trusting when we suffer and when we continue to suffer. We need a faith that is trusting when there are false starts and failures. We must know that God will act to deliver and not stop hoping in him, even if circumstances appear to the opposite. So I say to you, trust in him. Trust in him. We need a faith that is patient. When we wait, 40 years in Midian must have felt like a long time to Moses perhaps thinking that he would be there for the rest of his life. No sign of anything changing, but here he learnt patience that would enable him to complete his ministry calling. Think about the Israelites, 400 years in Egypt, they needed patience. Hebrews chapter 11 gives us a long list of the patient faith of the heroes of the Old Testament. I encourage you, take some time this week to read Hebrews 
11. Meditate on it, chew over it. You know, it's going to impart to you a a patience and a resilience that that you're not going to get on your own and you're certainly not going to get by meditating on our current culture of quick fixes and and, um, personal fulfilment instantly. Meditate on Hebrews 11. There are no quick fixes when it comes to problems and suffering and deliverance. When it comes to God shaping you and refining you and freeing you, it takes time. And thirdly, we need a a faith that is open-minded. When solutions look a bit different to how we expect, we need to be faith-filled enough to see that God is at work. Genocide. A baby in a basket, a mother, a sister, a daughter, a Hebrew slave adopted into the palace, an insignificant shepherd on the run for murder. None of it seems like a great way to free an entire nation of people from slavery. But God works in unexpected ways, doesn't he? We expect the grand, we expect the glorious, but God seems to work in very humble, very ordinary ways. Be open to seeing God in the unexpected. And finally, and I think this is the most beautiful part of all of Exodus chapter 2. So if this is the only part you get, pay attention to this part. What is it that brings and releases breakthrough and deliverance? We, We can't force God's hand, can we? So what can we do? while we're waiting for deliverance. And if you look at verse 23 to 25, we see that breakthrough comes through prayer and intimacy with God. Verse 23, During those many long days, the king of Egypt died and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and they cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God and God heard their groaning. And God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. God's God's people, they are are moaning and and shrieking and crying for help. And and the context here is that they're not just just crying into thin air. They're directing their cries to God. They are calling out to their God for deliverance and God remembers his covenant, his promises that he made to bless them, to make them fruitful, to give them a land, to be present with them as their God. Now, this is not God remembering because he had, uh, until then, forgotten. Like it's not a, oops, I I misplaced that covenant. You know, I stuck it at the back of the filing cabinet where it kind of got lost for a few years. Uh, Oh, here it is. Thanks for reminding me. Uh, I wouldn't have remembered without you. It's not that sort of remembering. We operate a bit like that, don't we? Um, Or or at least I certainly do because I'm a bit busy, you know. When uh, someone comes to you and they have a bit of a, um, look, have you forgotten that I need this kind of thing? And you're like, oh. Sorry, yep, I had forgotten. I I remember now. Um, This is actually God remembering in the sense of never forgetting. So for the parents out there, when a child comes to you and says, but you promised, and a parent's response is, yes, I remember. Sometimes the answer is, no way did I promise that, but work with me. Your response is, yes, I remember. I haven't forgotten. I do remember. 
So, for example, Psalm 105, verse 8, he remembers his covenant forever, the promise he has made for a thousand generations. So God doesn't forget, and it's helpful to remind ourselves of that. When we're tempted to doubt his promise, his plan, his calls, his, his plans, it might not be happening yet, but God hasn't forgotten. And here's where we get to the real nitty-gritty of things, the, the real pointy end of things. Verse 25. Your Bibles, if from the NIV or other translations, might say, you know, God looked at the Israelites and he was concerned about them. Okay, I think that's what Ray's Bible said. The ESV uses a different word there. And God saw the people of Israel and God knew. Now, this, this word knew, this is, a, this is an interesting word here. This is the, the same word that's used in, in Genesis when it says, and Cain knew his wife and she conceived. And Adam knew his wife and she bore a son. So this, this word here is a word that can have some quite different nuances. So in the NIV, it's translated as was concerned with, but personally, I think that kind of falls a bit flat. And here's why. The, this word uh, new uh, includes with it the intimacy that's shared between husband and wife. And so what this word is saying is it's saying God knew Israel. It's meaning he, he knew them in a personal and intimate and close way like a husband and wife, know each other. He has entered into them. He has entered into their experiences of suffering. He has joined with them in their suffering. And it's the prayer of the Israelites that invites God into their experiences. There's, there's something about prayer that, that fosters this deep and personal knowing between God and his people. There's an intimacy of relationship and experience that, that grows in the context of prayer. And this is a key aspect of God's intervention in this situation. He's not distant from their suffering. As they cry out to him, he enters into their pain. He joins with them and, and God is moved to help because of his covenant promises. There is a marriage-like commitment he's made to his people. And he is moved to help them because of that relationship. This isn't just an arbitrary, my sovereign will is to do this, so I will act. It's so much more than that. It's not just a, I said I'll rescue you, so I will do it. You know, that's sterile, that's distant, that's cold. God's deliverance is because his beloved is in pain and needs rescue. God's primary motive is to love his people, his bride, to care for her and to provide for her. It's not to win a battle or to score points against people who threaten his plans. So I wonder what is happening for you at the moment that you can invite God into? What promises, what needs, what experiences do you have that you might call out to God in prayer? Our good God knows your pain, he knows your frustration, he knows your needs, he knows your heart, he knows your desires, your hopes, your dreams, your hurts. As you cry out to him, there is an intimacy that grows between you and God and he enters into you and your experience. And he's moved to act, not out of a sterile, distant sense of his sovereign will, but out of his love for you. Let's pray. Lord God Almighty, we trust in you. We trust in your plans for deliverance. We trust in your plans for salvation.
We trust in the plans that you have for us as individuals. We thank you that you have entered into our life. We thank you that, that you are not distant and far away, but that you are intimate and close with us. We thank you for your gift of salvation. We thank you that you are shaping us and growing us. May we be a people who grow in compassion and patience. May we be a people who just uh, take our, our failures and our false starts to you. Lord God Almighty, we invite you into our situations. We cry out, we, we cry out in, in pain and, and, and confusion and hunger and hurt. We, we cry out our, our dreams and our hopes and our desires to you. And we know that you hear our prayers and we thank you, Lord God Almighty. We thank you that you enter into our situations and circumstances and that you bring deliverance. We thank you that you make all things new. We thank you that you make us new. We thank you that you make our families new. We thank you that you make our towns, our communities and our nations new. We thank you for the transformation and the deliverance that is found in the name of Jesus Christ. And we call out to you, Jesus, right now as our deliverer, as our salvation. Come and bring. Come and bring your deliverance. <coughs> to a hungry and broken and lost world. And may we be vessels used in that deliverance. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.